I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the book of Isaiah. Our text is Isaiah 40, 12 through 31. Isaiah 40, 12 to 31 is an amazing poetic reflection on the nature of the incomparable creator God of Israel. The beauty of the passage lends itself to being read and quoted without giving attention to the reason it's in Isaiah 40 in the first place. Why is this wonderful description of God here? Isaiah has just communicated God's commissioning of heralds to comfort the future generation living in exile in Babylon. This passage continues the consolation of Zion. To address this passage in context, we have to consider what the attributes of the Creator God have to do with comfort during a time of suffering. Isaiah began the message of comfort in 41 through 11 with three voices of hope. Hope in the glory of the Lord, hope in the word of the Lord, hope in the arm of the Lord. For hope in the glory of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the arm of the Lord, to be sustained through suffering, for that hope to continue, we must have confidence in who God is. At the beginning of suffering or or grief, our emotional state is overwhelmed. We need comfort and care. I'm reminded of the time Elijah, depressed by the lack of change in Israel after the defeat of the prophets of Baal, left Israel and walked all the way through Judah into the southern wilderness. He was done and he was leaving. He laid down under a tree to die, telling God, I'm no better than my father's. I could not bring about change in faithless Israel. God did not confront Elijah at that moment. God let him sleep. Then God gave him fresh bread and water and told him to sleep more. And again, he found fresh bread and water. Then God told him to walk to Mount Sinai. He still hasn't corrected Elijah's way of understanding his experience. Through that walk, Elijah didn't get one word of correction from God. He got a lot of physical activity. He got time to think. He got a place to go. We're not told what went on his mind during that long walk to Sinai. But when he got to Sinai, God met him and spoke both comforting and challenging words. It was time to shake Elijah out of himself a little bit. No, Elijah, you are not the only prophet left in Israel. That's not true. In fact, there are another 7,000. God could have told him that at the beginning. God doesn't. He gives him bread and water and rest. But at some time, he needs help moving out of the spiral a little push forward to a new perspective. That's where we are in Isaiah 40, 12 to 31. This is not the beginning of the lament process. If you want the beginning of the lament over exile, read Lamentations. Uh, there's only one brief hopeful word in the whole book. It's right in the center, but out of all of those verses in Lamentation, it's there's hardly any hope at all. It's the collective emotional cry of Israel right after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. That was not the time for the new perspective. That was a time for weeping. Isaiah is writing now to those who've already been in exile for about 70 years. Israel's time of hard service is over. They have paid back double for their sin. They have been exhorted to hope. That was the message of 41 through 11. Now they need to be shaken a little. They need to be reminded to look up and see God because to hope in God 
they need to have confidence in who God truly is. They need to see how much bigger God is than their own experiences. They also need to know if God cares. And they need to know, is God willing and able to do anything about their suffering? Questions about suffering always come back to the nature of God. Ultimately, it's got to come back to who do you believe God is? Do you know God well enough, deep enough to hope in him? No matter what you're going through, can you hold on to him? Can you trust him? Can you wait on him to bring you through? That's where we are in Isaiah 40, 12 to 31. I'm going to read the whole passage, just kind of get the whole thing at once. And then we'll, we'll go through their three major parts and we'll take each of the three parts in turn. Isaiah 40, 12 to 31. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult? Who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice, taught him knowledge and informed him in the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol... A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me? escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. 
They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. That's awesome. This passage divides into three parts, verses 12 to 20, 21 to 26, and 27 to 31. Each of the three parts takes a slightly different approach to the reader. The first part is a rhetorical invitation to reflection about the nature of God. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? The second part is more of a challenge. Do you not know? Have you not heard? And the third is an exhortation to apply what you ought to know. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? Three particular aspects of God's nature are repeated in each of these three parts. First, as creator, God must be immensely powerful. Second, he must also be unbelievably wise. Third, God is absolutely unique. He is incomparable. There is no one like God at all. That's our basic structure. We have three parts, an invitation, a challenge, and an exhortation. And each part considers these three aspects of our creator God's character, his power, his wisdom, and his uniqueness. The first section, 40, 12 to 20, begins in verse 12 with a rhetorical invitation to consider the immense power of God as creator. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? You can't miss the synonymous parallelism from verset to verset in the verbs measured, marked off, calculated and weighed those actions are all the same thing different words same action of measurement what is measured changes in each verset waters heavens dust mountains hills the tool for measurement changes too hollow of the hand span measure balance scales we are invited to imagine god at work like a carpenter or as a builder in a poetic way to think about the immensity of who God is. And if you have good science in your knowledge of the universe, it doesn't compete with this. It enhances this. If you're aware of the immensity of things, then bring that knowledge into this poetic imagining of how big God is. So imagine God at work like a carpenter or a builder What tool might God use to measure all the water on the earth, all the oceans and rivers and lakes? He's not going to use a bucket or a tub or even a thousand liter tank. That's like emptying a swimming pool with a thimble. Any conceivable measuring tool is tiny compared to all the water on the earth. What could we use? Um, The hollow of God's hand. That's the immensity of God. Try it with a cup of tea. Go to your kitchen, pull out a teacup. How many handfuls to fill the cup? It took me 14. Now let's do that for, let's say, uh, the Indian Ocean or the Atlantic, the Pacific. The Pacific is huge. 714 million cubic kilometers, not meters, but 714 million cubic kilometers of water. That's what? Eight, nine handfuls for God, no problem. That's the scale he works on. He can span the heavens. 
He has a stick he can use for that. He's got a thousand kilometer stick and a million kilometer stick. You know, just he's got the right stick for whatever work he's doing. He can use one of those to mark off the heavens. He's also got a couple of measuring baskets to calculate the volume of all the dust in the world. And a balance, he can take Mount Everest and put it on the balance. And he's got these weights on the other side. He can add or take off to figure out the the weight of Everest. He's got also a smaller pair of scales with more precise weights for hills. With those images, Isaiah invites us to consider the immensity of God, the power of God. What kind of being creates on the scale of the universe? God does. The creator God of Israel creates on that scale. Another attribute. It's one thing to be immense in your power. It's another thing to understand what you're doing. A roofer might hire a strapping young teenager to carry the shingles up to the roof, but he's not going to put him in charge of the job site. Verses 13 and 14, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor, who has informed him? With whom did he consult? Who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice? Taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding. What university did God go to? Now, who taught him physics? Where did he learn chemistry, biology? Where did he get his doctorate in universe creation? Who enlightened God on how to create matter? And who gets him spiritual direction? Who helps God understand metaphysics? What counselors gather around God to inform him on the state of the nations to help him understand politics and worldwide economics? Who does God consult? Who does he go to when he's not sure what decision to make? Now, who helps him think through his motives? And whose couch does he lie down on? Who helps him think about what he really wants to get out of a relationship? Who teaches God about love? Who teaches God about race issues and poverty, the abuse of children, and the plight of immigrants? Who helps God with social justice and criminal justice and political justice? With immense power and unbelievable wisdom, God called into existence something from nothing. He fashioned the sun, a ball of gas, to give off a relatively unending source of heat and light. Not really unending, but as far as we're concerned, a light bulb that lasts millions of years will do. Not only did he craft the sun, he crafted a solid planet a hundred times smaller and placed it 150 million kilometers away, just the right distance and just the right size. It's just right to maintain an orbit in the delicate sweet spot necessary for biological life. A fraction closer to the sun or farther from the sun and the temperature swing would make life impossible. You know, just a fraction and everything either boils or freezes. Who helped God out with that? Who informed him of the way of understanding? No one. God is self-dependent in all his knowledge. He goes to no one for help. No university, no psychiatrist, no spiritual director. God's wisdom and knowledge are without end. He knows all that can be known, and he knows what to do with it. He knows how it works. So, God is immensely powerful and unbelievably wise. 
Who else is like that? Who can we compare God to? Verses 15 to 20 speak to the uniqueness of God. This is in two parts. We start with 15 to 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Who else has the power to bring such an incredible amount of matter into existence and fashion it in such a finely tuned manner for life to thrive on the planet Earth? Isaiah doesn't bother with individual comparisons. He tells us that entire nations of people, not one person, but nations of people become insignificant when compared to God. It's a wildly unfair comparison, but since we human beings so often put ourselves up on a level to judge God, you know, we think we know better than him, the comparison must be made to give us an accurate sense of who we are really talking about when we talk about God. Compared to God, whole nations of people are a drop from a bucket and a speck of dust on the scales. Those two metaphors connect us back to the earlier verse when Isaiah asked, who calculated the dust of the earth by a measure in the hills in a pair of scales? That was the inanimate creation. Now we're using it for the animate creation for humanity. If an entire nation is a drop in a bucket, all the nations together don't even start to fill the bucket. Or if island nations like Cyprus, Crete, Malta are specks of fine dust, you'd have to squint closely at the speck to make out the shape. You can't even see it. That the nations are as nothing and meaningless to God contrasts sharply with God's gracious love for people. God is going to save a remnant from both Israel and from the Gentile nations. People are not meaningless to God, but this is an issue of comparison. Isaiah is reminding us of the great contrast between ourselves and God. We are so tiny as to be invisible, nothing. For God to be concerned with an individual, it would be like you concerned with an ant. Not really with an ant. Maybe you being concerned with one cell in the body of an ant. Human nations gathered together are but drops of water. Even the largest of nations like India or China are but a larger drop compared to God. We cannot influence or move or threaten or compete with God. The nations, with all of their importance and influence in human affairs, are meaningless in the sense that that they can't influence or contradict God's plans or actions at all. Nations can have no effect on what God does. I'm reminded of Psalm 2, 1-2, Nations, peoples, kings, and rulers take counsel together against God and his anointed. Let the nations of the Middle East, of the European Union, of North America, let them come together to oppose God and his Messiah. How does God respond? Psalm 2-4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. How does that, which is no more than a speck of dust on his little finger, threaten the sovereign creator of the universe? Can we influence God through religious action? Can we force God's hands? Well, if Egypt is but a drop in the bucket, how could we imagine God being impressed with the sacrifice of a little lamb 
or even the sacrifice of thousands of little lambs. Can that really move God? I mean, verse 16, even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. It's not impressive. You could pile up all the wood in a forest nation and sacrifice every animal in the entire country, and it would still just be a symbolic gesture that doesn't do justice to the immensity and glory of God. Religious action only makes an impression on God if God has decided to condescend and take notice. God is unique. There is no comparison to human individuals. There is no comparison to the mightiest and most advanced of human nations. There's also no comparison between the power and wisdom of God and the power and wisdom of human religion. Verse 16 just hinted at a comparison to human religion. Verses 18 to 20 focus on that comparison. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that doesn't rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Isaiah will return to the foolishness of idolatry. We'll address his argument more carefully in chapter 44. Some argue that Isaiah's representation of idolatry is unfair. He makes it absurdly simple, not addressing more complex spiritual ideas that the ancients associated with their gods and their idols. That's a fair observation. But it is unfair to think Isaiah is unaware of the simplicity of his argument or unfamiliar with the developed ideas of ancient religion. I'm pretty sure what he's doing is calling us to look through that human theology of idolatry, look through those worldviews, and see how absurd it is because it is, in fact, absurd. That's his point. It is true that creating our own gods springs from deeply human motivations and seeks to meet deeply human needs. Nevertheless, creating our own gods is a deeply flawed solution. Human religion, magic, superstition all have psychological power to affect human behaviors. And sometimes they tap into the supernatural power of the demonic. So there's real stuff going on in human religion. But whatever effect a man-made god or ritual may produce, that god has no ability at all to meet the true needs of the human heart especially the need for redemption and life. Take a whole theological structure that may go back thousands of years and that may meet deeply psychological needs of human beings. It is still a psychological construct. We're saying there's a real creator God who really made stuff out of nothing. And when you compare the power and wisdom of the one true creator God to all other gods. They really are sticks of wood covered with gold set in place by human beings who have to prop them up so that they will not totter and fall. What, however advanced the religion and theology is, it is a human creation that does not compare at all to a real God who can really create 
a universe. Isaiah mocks two ideas here. First, he mocks the idea that any image can adequately capture the nature of who God is. How does an idol truly represent God? And we have to include the image of a lion or a lamb. God is not a lion and God is not a lamb. God is not a baby born at Christmas. God is not a man crucified on a cross. Those images convey particular truths about who God is. But each image also lacks other truths about who God is. God transcends physical reality. There is no image, there is no theological system that can fully, comprehensively, accurately represent the nature of who God is. God is unique. The second idea mocked here is that human beings can create their own gods. We don't define God. God defines us. True religion cannot be man-made. True knowledge, true worship, true moral practice must be communicated by God to us. We don't have in ourselves the wisdom, the spiritual insight, the moral goodness necessary to comprehend or describe the nature of God. We have flashes of insight because God has placed something of himself in us. So some true morality is in all religions, pretty much all religions. We are fashioned in his image. We shouldn't confuse our innate attraction to the truth about who God is with competency in defining for ourselves the nature of God. Whatever we create will be deeply flawed. We will have to artificially hold up gods of our own making so that they don't totter and fall. No human religion can compete with the power and wisdom of the true God. He's not like any man. He's not like any God. He's absolutely unique. Okay, so with verse 20, we have completed the first main part of this passage. Isaiah has invited us to consider the immensity, the wisdom, and the uniqueness of God. Now Isaiah challenges us to admit that knowledge of God's attributes has not been hidden. We should know these things. The challenge to admit knowledge of the creator God's attributes is in 40, 21 to 26. I'll start with 21 to 24. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. Isaiah doesn't develop the how we ought to know. He just says we ought to know. Psalm 19, 1 to 6 and Romans 1, 18 to 23 both argue that the creation itself declares who God is. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that humankind is without excuse. So that's Romans 1, 20. Psalm 19 and Romans 2 both also argue that God declares truth about himself in his word. Isaiah could have in mind either the general revelation of the creation or the specific revelation of God's word or both. Either way, he's challenging us. You should know these things about God. Isaiah makes that claim and then he summarizes what he's already said about the attributes of God. Again, we're made to recognize the immensity of God. 
God sits above the circle of the earth. That's not, by the way, a flat earth confirmation. Uh, The earth is a sphere, not a circle. But if you were high above the earth looking down on it, you would see a circle. Just like we see a circle when we look up in the night sky and there's the full moon. It looks like this, this beautiful white disc in the night sky. So in fact, this is an interesting, accurate description as a poet. If you're saying what God would see as he's looking down, he would see the circle of the earth. He would see a disc. We've all seen pictures of it, the beautiful blue and green disc that an astronaut sees from heaven. Then if he were to look closer, Isaiah says, he would see tiny inhabitants hopping about like grasshoppers. God's immensity in creation here is compared to a man setting up a tent. Now imagine yourself putting up a tent in your backyard and you're pulling the poles out of the bag and you're struggling to stretch out the canvas and get the the nylon cords just right and finally pressing the metallic hooks into the soil to keep it steady. And you're really proud of yourself when you're done. You know, look what I did. I set up a tent. The earth is the dwelling place God made for humankind. In Isaiah, it's like God has set up a tent. That's how immense God is. Also, again, Isaiah reminds us that the mighty men of earth, the rulers and the judges, none of them affect the activity and plan of God. God is completely independent and self-sufficient in his planning. They are as nothing, meaningless, in relation to God's sovereign plan for humanity. Before Isaiah emphasized the tiny size of nations compared to God, here he emphasizes how ephemeral we are. It's one of the things from our last lesson. How can a particular crop of grass fit into God's long-term plans when it is so quickly gone? Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. How does humankind affect the, the will and the plan of God? What is man to God? Not only is it so small, it doesn't last any time at all. Isaiah brings us back to the question of comparison, and he this time he puts it in the first person. God is speaking. To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. That's interesting. He uses the, the term Holy One because Isaiah's not focusing on the, the holy character of God. You know, we have that whole vision from chapter 6 and the, the glory of God coming out of the temple and Isaiah's overwhelming sense of, of sinfulness before God, that's that's not here. But just by referring to God as the Holy One of Israel and because we've been studying Isaiah, just that, that one reference adds in that whole aspect of God's character, who he is. He's not just mighty. He's not just wise. He's also holy. He is good. Then Isaiah suggests this exercise. If you want to feel a sense of the immensity of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, go outside on a clear night away from city lights, you know, like go out into the mountains or into the countryside, get on a boat and go out into the sea with no lights around and look up into that night sky. You know, the ancients would have seen without electricity. It's just dark and you look up and what do you see and how do you feel? I'm betting you've probably felt this before. You've had this experience. Verse 26 Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. 
the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. This is powerful at any time because this is just that human experience of being so small in the midst of something so large at night alone looking up at the sky. But this is one of those places where science just makes it blow up. It's so much bigger than even that. That experience is just suggestive, but we know a a bit of the reality. I mean, consider the size of the sun and remember that each tiny star is a sun and the vast distance between stars doesn't bother God. The vast number of stars doesn't bother God. How many stars can you see at one time in the night sky? Now, I couldn't find out an exact answer. I guess it depends where you are and how clear it is and what you can see, but somewhere between two and 5,000 stars you see, and that's enough to overwhelm. God knows the name of each, Isaiah says. God is aware of what he has created. That's a powerful illustration. But then if you, you add in what we know now about the size of the universe, 2,000 to 5,000 stars is nothing. You know, what we see is nothing. Scientists think there's between 100 and 200 billion stars. And God knows each by name. He leads them forth like warriors in an army. God has a billion warriors behind him. Isaiah's last verse set in verse 26 emphasizes God's wisdom. Not one of them is missing. Of a hundred billion stars, God hasn't misplaced one. Not one's missing. God has arranged the universe to declare the glory of his name. And he arranged it exactly as he intended to arrange it. It is as it was meant to be. God is sovereign. The universe is not a mistake. In the third and final part of this passage, Isaiah brings his point home to the exiled of Israel. And I say Israel instead of Judah because we're not making a distinction anymore between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. This will be important for the rest of the book of Isaiah. Remember, the northern kingdom was wiped out by Assyria in 722 BC. There's no need to make distinction in the rest of Isaiah. Judah and Israel can now be used interchangeably as we look ahead towards the exile to come. In verse 27 that we're getting ready to read, Isaiah uses Jacob and Israel in parallel versets to make this point that we are now using Israel as the covenant name for God's people, all who came from Jacob. We're not using it as the northern kingdom. And so the the word Israel now applies to all the remnant who are going to be in the Babylonian exile. God's people, Israel, mourn for all that has been lost. The tribes are scattered. The land has been given to others. The temple is destroyed. God declared at the beginning of chapter 40 that the time of punishment for Israel's sin is over. The people are free to return. Three heralds are commissioned to proclaim a message of comfort. The people are to be comforted by hope in the glory of God, by the infallibility of the word of God, and by the power of his saving arm. For the people to experience comfort in these messages of hope, they must know and trust the character of God. Does the Lord really care about us? Does he see us? And is he able to do anything about our situation? That's what we all want to know in suffering and pain. Does God care? Does he see me? Can he do anything about it? 
Isaiah has now spent the first two parts of this passage communicating a resounding yes. Yes, God is able to save you from exile and bring you home. Remember who we're talking about. He is the creator God, immensely powerful, unbelievably wise, and absolutely unique. He's able. Okay, he's able. Does he see me? If the nations are a speck of dust, does he see me? Does he care about me? Can we apply what we know about our awesome God to our present situation? This is Isaiah 40, 27 to 31, beginning with verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? That's our fear and suffering. God, are you even there? Do you even see me? You know, we might even accuse God and the justice due me escapes your notice, God. This is not fair. It's not right. Our reflection on the immensity of God doesn't remove this fear. If the nations are a speck of dust and the rulers of the nations are meaningless, who am I that God would even be aware of me? I'm a blade of grass born this morning, withering alone in the heat of the sun. I'll be gone before God notices. That is exactly right when we think only on the immensity of God. He transcends our earthly experience. He exists forever. I look at the night sky and I am overwhelmed by my insignificance. I am engulfed by its magnitude. God is so much greater. He is so much more glorious. Verse 28, do you not know, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Yes, he's everlasting. He's creator. He never becomes tired. He's beyond my understanding. I glory in him. And yet in recognizing how far above the universe he is, I feel left behind alone in the dark. He never grows tired. Well, I certainly grow tired. How can he care about me? And these next verses are where it all comes home. God cares about people. God sees you. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. God sees his people. God sees you. God cares. Though youths grow weary and tired, that could be a description of the young man worn out by his effort. It's also an apt description of those who have lived a long life. Youths eventually age and grow weary. Young men eventually grow old and stumble badly. It also works as a description of burnout or depression. The strength of youth keeps you going, but suffering and grief and constant toil sap that strength. You lose your vigor, your feet stumble. Isaiah holds out this hope. God sees. God cares. You are weary now. Will it always be this way? Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. When, Lord? When will this be true of me? Is this a promise for right now? Do I just have to believe? And believing in true faith, will I rise up with the energy of youth? Maybe. If you're really going through something hard, probably not. That's not what wait means. 
By definition, wait means not right now. Later, you have to wait on the Lord. Waiting here is an act of faith. Wait for when? Isaiah doesn't say. If we're speaking of the exile, then those first taken will have to wait 70 years for the return. Those who were born in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, not so long. When we apply this comfort to our own situations, whatever it may be, we have to wait until God brings us through the suffering, the grief, the toil. It's not a promise for an immediate fix. This is not, I believe, and all of a sudden I have the strength of a youth. The situation might even end, and yet you still have a period of waiting. You still need to lament. You have to pass through your grief emotionally and spiritually. You might have a long wait. Now, one day, you'll be able to set your eyes in the direction of the promised land. For us now, that means setting our eyes on Jesus and his kingdom. If you are in grief, beaten down, you will one day rise up again. You will run and not be tired, walk and not be weary one day. How long? I can't say. Waiting is a faith word. When we are emotionally and spiritually healthy, we may be drained in the evening and invigorated in the morning. We may be tired after work and we're just praying in the car and we get re-energized by the time we get home and we can have a great evening with our kids. The wait may be only a moment. It could be a couple of hours. It could be a night. It could be a day. For deep grief and sorrow, wait may mean a year or more. This is also an already not yet truth. We can experience the invigoration of the Spirit to some degree in our present. We experience the life of grace now through our union with Jesus. But the complete, everlasting fulfillment of this promise is not yet. Now, we get it already in a part, but not yet completely. We are reinvigorated through this life as we wait on God. At the same time, this is a picture of eternal life with God in a new heaven and a new earth. Our life on earth is in some sense an exile from our true home. When we arrive in the promised land of the new heaven and new earth, we really will regain all the strength and exuberance of youth. Even if we never had strength and exuberance of youth in this life, we'll have it there. We will be transformed with new bodies. Our mind and soul will be healthy and full. Our spirit will be in harmony with his spirit. Let's end with this. Consider the earlier promises of hope given in 41 through 11. Do you believe in the coming glory of the Lord? Do you believe in the truthfulness of his word? Do you believe in the strength of his arm? As you think about that, consider his character described in 40, 12 to 31. This is the glory I'm asking if you believe in. This is, this is the truthfulness of who he is. This is the strength of his arm. Do you confess that his creation power is so far above anything you can imagine? Do you agree that his wisdom outshines your ability to understand and comprehend? Anybody's ability to understand and comprehend. Do you know that the nations are like a drop in the bucket? And yet, do you also believe that he cares about you, that he wants to give you renewed strength? Do you believe he sees you? Do you believe he loves you? If you do, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. And be comforted, because those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. 
you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like the overview chart or other resources that go with our study of Isaiah, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the Book of Romans, the Pentateuch, the Gospel of John, and the Book of Acts.